Hello, and welcome back to the Out the Gate Sailing Podcast. I am your host, Ben Shaw, and today's show is sponsored by Sun Powered Yachts. Because there are so many benefits of having solar on your boat. It's clean, quiet, abundant power. And today's panels are just so much more efficient than ever. If you already have solar, you just might want to consider upgrading. If you're looking for new panels, controllers, wiring, and other solar gear, or even just someone to talk to about installing solar on your boat, you should reach out to Lyle and Katie at Sun Powered Yachts. They know solar, and as sailors themselves, they cater to the boating community. I met Katie and Lyle, as I've said before, at the Richmond Boat Show, and I had Katie on the podcast, so you should go listen to that, episode 10. And after I talked with them, I knew I'd reach out to them when it was time to upgrade my panels, which I'm in the process of doing. It's been a little stalled getting them on the boat because I am trying to figure out how to mount them. I've gone through a couple of different iterations, but it will happen, and I am about to install new Maxion 415-watt panels from SunPowered Yachts, and that'll give me the peace of mind and peace and quiet for going for days without running the engine. Also, Listeners in the Bay Area should know that panels are available for pickup in Hayward, California, which can save you a bundle on shipping. So find out more and order your own panels at sunpoweredyachts.com. This episode is a little late. I was hoping to get it out last weekend, but I was out sailing in the Bay and in the Delta this past week with my family aboard Dovka. It was a bit of a shakedown of sorts after... All the work I've been doing, the big refit this past week, was my first opportunity to test out the new electrical system that I designed and installed, including the new lithium batteries from Blue Heron Batteries. And I'm super pleased with how it all turned out. And that's good because my guest this week is Hank George, the owner of Blue Heron Battery, which you've likely heard of because he's a sponsor of the show. And... Hank sold me my batteries. As you'll hear, Hank is an engineer who has a background working in the nuclear industry and designing his own components and systems. He was cruising with lithium power years before most people, and he's helped many other boaters do the same. In addition to his expertise, what's impressed me with Hank, as I've gotten to know him over the past few months, is the clear way he's able to explain complex topics with generosity and patience. As he says in this interview, and and I know he means it, he's happy to talk to people about lithium batteries, even if they're not customers, because he wants them to have the knowledge and the right information. I hope you find this interview as informative as I do. So here we go. Well, Ben, thank you so much. I'm uh, honored to be on and glad to share thoughts and ideas and a little bit of my story with uh, other people. So uh, I'm uh, uh, retired from my original uh, uh, profession, which was uh, engineering in the nuclear power business, Uh, helped a number of plants get uh, finished construction and licensed. I uh, had a team of engineers that worked on a lot of different systems that uh, reported to me, had my own company, able to retire early. Uh, all through my uh, professional career, my wife and I decided, actually pretty early on, right after we got married, uh, in our early 20s, we were just kids, and uh, decided that sailing was important to both of us. We had done it in our youth, and uh, so probably the first thing we bought after buying a car was buying a, a small beat up sailboat and uh, did a lot of sailing over the years. Uh, we got into ocean sailing in the 80s and doing some ocean crossings, passages to uh, Bermuda and uh, with just us. And then uh, it, it, we would uh, um, arrange our professional career to where we could uh, uh, try to take off about a month every year uh, to do some serious sailing and would uh, take off in, uh, 
you know, sail uh, just double-handed at the Chesapeake uh, Ocean all the way on up to Nova Scotia. A lot of trips like that, you know, down the coast to to the Bahamas for a couple of months and then back uh, to the Chesapeake and back to work. So, you know, it was something that was very important to us all through our professional career. And so when we retired uh, in our 50s, we then – we had already had a uh, Tiana 52 ocean-going vessel, well-equipped, and we took that to the Caribbean and uh, went back and forth to the Caribbean 13 times. And, you know, we'd spend the whole winter there, six months, uh, you know, sailing uh, through the winter and, uh, it, you know, introducing a, a number of friends and others to uh, to sailing and got involved with the Salty Dog Sailing Association in its infancy to uh you know, try to promote that theme as well, you know, share our experiences. At the time we joined, we uh, had each logged about uh, 140,000 miles under sail. And so, you know, shared a lot of our experiences with uh, people there, introduced them to uh, uh, to the Salty Dog Sailing Association. They'd be able to do the rally to the Caribbean, and, you know, and then, um, you know, if they weren't quite ready to do that, uh, you know, find a way to crew. And so when we started, you know, with just, uh, you know, four people and, and then growing. And, and now it's, uh, I guess, on the Facebook uh, page, it's uh, 1,500 members, wow. uh, you know, those paying, uh, you know, dues to the association um, and actively involved is some 800 members. So very active sailing association of people that are, uh, you know, very interested in blue water sailing. And so we did that for a number of years. I was president for several years, but retired from that position last year. And so kind of stepped away from, from that. And so, uh, but all along the way when we were sailing, and I don't know, maybe it's a little long introduction, sorry. Ben, no, that's all right. Know, all I love along, the background. Yeah, all along the way, we would uh, uh, help people but with my engineering, both mechanical engineering degree and electrical engineering degree. Um, you know, it helped people with their, uh, you know, with their boats and their systems and taking care of problems. And 14 years ago, got involved in saying, oh, you know, I want to give this uh, lithium battery uh, approach a try. And so researched that and evaluated different suppliers, installed it on um, on our boat. And then over the years, uh, based on the experience we had in installing a lithium battery bank in, in our uh, Katana 471 uh, 14 years ago, we, we then helped a number of other sailors uh, uh, install lithium batteries. So it's 13 other boats over those, you know, uh, it was over about a 10-year period. What we would do is have things shipped into St. Thomas and uh, do the install there. And about a, a week after that, you know, take off and go cruising again until, you know, the next boat needed needed an install. So <laughs> usually one or two installs per winter. You know, that's sort of what got us introduced to the uh, lithium battery business. Well, that's the interview right there, Hank. I think we got your whole story. Thank you. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. There's so so many great <laughs> questions. So many, so many questions about um, that I want to dive into here. Um, sure. Okay. Um, but let's go way, way back. You said that when you and your wife first got married, sailing was important to you. Where did each of you start sailing, and how did it become important to each of you? So much so that you decided that you were going to make it something you did together. Each of us uh, got introduced to it through our fathers uh, who uh, had an interest in going out on the water, and they did that in the Chesapeake Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seal, my wife, growing up in uh, uh, suburbs of Baltimore, so she and her dad and her mom, you know, we'd go out in a little wooden skiff, uh, about a 20-footer with an outboard on it, about a 20-horse outboard, and go out and go fishing. and. Seal would see these little boats go sailing by, so her, her dad decided, okay, you know, let's buy a little sailboat, and kind of got introduced to, you know, just small uh, dinghy sailing in, in her youth. Uh, and no racing, it was, you know, just uh, piddling along on, uh, you know, some of the tributaries of the Chesapeake on a, you know, a nice uh, summer weekend. I had to stop you uh, there because I don't think of summer yeah. weekends on the Chesapeake necessarily as nice. Fall and spring. <laughs> but summer uh, can be pretty uh, miserable on the Chesapeake. Well, it's a great place to sail in protected waters, and I think the you know the uh, you know a lot of people walk away with okay, you get into uh, you know the the heat of the summer and it's not great sailing, and for sure you get the uh, you know high pressure systems settle in and they're not good days. But you know between those systems, you you know you got to you can't just say well I'm going to go sailing today. You got to watch the weather and sure, it, you sure. know it's one or two days a week. Get some nice breeze and you can get out. I do have to say I have not living by the Chesapeake Bay anymore. I, I didn't truly appreciate 
what an amazing sailing and cruising ground it is until I left. And it's just the number of rivers and creeks and places to just get away and explore. It's just amazing. Yeah, it is. And so we enjoyed, um, you know, this is jumping a little back uh, forward again, but into our professional careers, we would, uh, you know, almost every weekend, it was that was our escape to head down to, to the boat in Annapolis or Solomon's, wherever we had, you know, kept it at that time. And, and you go somewhere different where you had never been before. And we do that, you know, 40 weekends a year and over, you know, 20 years and mm. rarely going into the same place. Uh, so you're right. It is a great cruising area. How did your father and family introduce you to sailing? What are your earliest memories? Yeah. So my, my dad grew up in Atlantic City, and at that time it was not the gambling kind of place it is now. It was uh, blue collar. It was a weekend uh, uh, escape for people getting out of Philly or whatever. And so it was a, for those who lived there, it was you know blue collar, hardworking. And so uh, he ended up uh, out of many jobs he did in his youth to you know help he and his brother help support the family. They had let, lost their dad at an early age, and so they worked different things. My dad got. Uh, working on some fishing boats, old wooden boats, and, you know, they take them offshore to get a little closer to the Gulf Stream and do some fishing and, you know, bring people back. And so, you know, that introduced him to the water. And so, uh, you know, when he was able to, you know, after raising a family, uh, you know, we got an old wooden boat that was uh, sort of the family weekend uh, getaway. It was a power boat. Um, but on one of the family adventures, uh, we were along the Jersey coast and, uh, seeing all these class sailboats going out in the evening and racing and whatever, I'd wander the docks and one time just fortunate to where someone said, Hey kid, you want to, you want to go, go out for a sail? I need to go out and uh, test some uh, rigging that I've just tuned. And, and that was it. I was hooked from that point on. I was hooked and had to, had to have my own little boat, and, you know, um, mowing lawns, uh, you know, collecting materials and build my own boat. Uh, and it was an El Toro class, uh, uh, dinghy and, mm-hmm. you know, we race that in class races, uh, uh, usually just up and down the Chesapeake, a few inland lakes. Um, and so that's how I got introduced to sailing and it was just always, a you know, a part of my, uh, preteen and, uh, you know, early teens, you know, until we got, you know, you go off to college and whatever else, and you're just too busy with that. But, you know, shortly after college, when we got married, that's why we both said, you know, this is what we want to have, you know, part of our life. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And then what was the first boat that you guys got as a couple? Uh, the first one we got was a uh, hull number 109, uh, Catalina 22. And uh, it was one of those that, uh, uh, you know, the headroom was a little over four feet. So you had to go around on your knees to, to get the different, you know, get to the forward V-berth or whatever. So is that it was an the, experience. Is that the Catalinas that had a little pop top that would pop up and give you uh, That was a later version. Okay. Uh, it was not in that vintage. But, yeah, they, they did have a later version that uh, was a pop top. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great little boats. Yeah. Perfect and so for we go out on you know, we can get away with that. And, and, uh, you know, we'd see some other boat, like, you know, whatever Pearson 30 or Catalina 27 and say, wow, someday maybe we can afford that. (laughs) (laughs) Funny how it goes. Yeah. And, uh, how did you get into the, uh, nuclear engineering? So you said you were, uh, electrical and, and mechanical engineer. Mechanical and, um, yeah, when I graduated from Johns Hopkins, I had uh, uh, received an offer from uh, an engineering firm that was uh, setting up an operation in northern Alabama to uh, work on uh, design of some of the nuclear plants that uh, TVA uh, was planning. And so, uh, although I didn't have nuclear experience, there are a lot of electrical and mechanical systems, including batteries. <laughs> mm. uh, and uh, but along the way, I took a number of uh, graduate nuclear engineering courses. Um, you know, I didn't get the uh, graduate degree. Um, you know, instead, I got an MBA. But uh, uh, it, you know, did have uh, you know, you know, plenty of technical background that was uh, pertinent to the nuclear plants. I'm sure. And where. It's funny because I have a connection between nuclear power and, and sailing as well because I sailed out of the Patuxent and the Calvert Cliffs power plant was was right sure. there all the time. <laughs> so I used to see that yep. all the time. Did you ever do any work there? 
I, I did some consulting work when we when, when I you know in a few later years had an engineering and management consulting firm that myself and two others were partners in, and we would do some studies. And so we did a study there on how to uh, improve the efficiency of their refueling operations. And mm-hmm. refueling would typically take, and you'd shut down and do some major maintenance, would typically take uh, a couple of months. If you could shave just hours or days off of that, it, it saved the utility and, and ratepayers millions of dollars. And so uh, we've, you know, we and others working on that area eventually got the uh, refuelings down to be about a one month uh, operation. Wow. So it, uh, um, you know, it took several years to get there. A lot of it was, uh, you know, management systems, you know, uh, computer <laughs> systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the early management uh, folks that went into the nuclear business had come out of the uh, the coal business, and it, you know, it's a little different philosophy. You know, you operate things till they break. Well, you can't do that in a nuclear plant. You got to be doing, you know, preventive maintenance and doing things in advance and planning. And it was fun. It was interesting. And, wow, you must and, have dealt with some reporting. really interesting projects. What what projects stand out for you in terms of that? I was uh, selected to be uh, a team lead of an investigation team to look at uh, the Browns Ferry fire and what occurred there. For listeners who aren't familiar, explain what that was. uh, There was a fire in a plant there, Unit uh, 3. It was a three-unit plant. The other two were operating. This unit was down, not operating. But there were some shared systems, auxiliary water systems, cooling systems. They were doing maintenance to where they were running some uh, new cable for a new system being added to the plant during an outage. Uh, um, Every time um, a cable or a pipe passes through a wall, it's called a penetration, you have to seal it back up so that you're isolating whatever occurs in one room to only that room and not the adjacent room. And so it has to withstand, uh, you know, pressure and temperature and fire. These uh, workers had scaffolding and they were foaming in place, the uh, penetration seal. And they thought, well, it wasn't in the procedure, but they thought it'd be a good idea to do a leak test. And they knew the heating air conditioning was operating on one side and not on the other. So they could feel an airflow coming through the penetration before they sealed it up. So once they sealed it up, they said, okay, let's go ahead and uh, we'll just grab some newspaper here. We'll light it off. They lit it on fire on one side, held it up near the penetration to see if any smoke came through to the other side. Well, the only problem is that made an open fire inside a a plant and they're thinking, well, it's not operating, you know, what's the big deal? The flames from this tiny little fire were drawn into this thin opening between the sealant and uh, some electrical cabling. The sealant was still off-gassing some of its volatile materials, you know, as part of its curing process and they were combustible. So that ignited and then ignited the foam and then the cabling uh, insulation. And then that spread from that room to an adjacent room before they got things put out. So Mm. it didn't cause any damage operationally, but it had, you know, some systems in that plant that were dependent on to be backup emergency systems if something went wrong in the adjacent unit. So it did have some you know, safety implications directly, but even indirectly, you know, doing things like that in a nuclear plant, you know, there's no business doing it. Before you told that story, I was going to ask a question about adopting technology because you had mentioned batteries and how you do mm-hmm. with batteries. And did you also adopt any ways of thinking in terms of safety and procedures from what you saw in the industry to your own life aboard? Oh. Well, absolutely. I mean, there are some fundamental principles that from an engineering standpoint that we tried to instill as a result of those findings, but just trying to bring a more orderly process in the 70s into the you know, design and operation of these plants. And uh, the underlying principles were redundancy and diversity. And diversity is used a lot these days in, uh, in social circles, but it's been in engineering circles for decades and what that means is if you have let's say uh, some operating system and in case it doesn't work uh, something happens uh, you, you have a backup system so that's the redundancy one philosophy was to have double redundancy so you have two backup systems for every operational system and the diversity would be each of those two uh, backup safety systems for whatever that function is 
had to have extensive diversity throughout. It was you, you didn't use the same philosophy as the first system. You might have uh, a steam-powered uh, auxiliary feed water pump. The you know the other one may be a motor-driven uh, auxiliary feed water yeah. pump. But you have two auxiliary feed water pumps as backups. Is that uh, a philosophy that you you adopted when you were cruising? Yeah, same sort of thing. I wanted redundancy throughout everything on the boat, things that were important. Uh, we have an autopilot. We had a backup autopilot. So we, the double redundancy was going a little far. I mean, you know, yeah, at some yeah. point, you balance things with the pocketbook. But yeah, I would have a second autopilot, and it was a completely different manufacturer and set of components and whatever else. Uh, we ended up having a lightning strike, and one system turned out to be more sensitive to that kind of a pulse, and we, you know, you lose it. The other one was fine, and it was there, kept on going. So, you know, so that's the diversity and the redundancy, both, in the, you know, in one example. In others, you would just make sure we have, uh, you know, backup water pumps, and it may not be a different type of water pump. It wasn't as important or critical, right. but, you know, you and then carry spares, so a spare pump, so you can just switch out the pump. And not just have a rebuild kit. You know, if one pump goes down, well, okay, I'll pull it out and I'll, I'll repair it. I have a repair kit for it. For me, I wanted to have a second pump already, you know, in place. Just throw a switch, open valves, and away you go. So it was a lot of that in the in, in boating, and, and it helps a lot when you're doing a more critical sailing, like long distance offshore passages, trying to come through uh, little cuts in a reef. Uh, you know, things where you know you don't have time to just say, "Whoop, let's hit pause and go deal with things." Yeah. Yeah electronics have gotten more and more critical for sailors. People rely on them more and more, which goes back to the energy system, which goes back to the batteries, which are powering them. 14 years ago, lithium was, you were quite an early adopter of lithium. Have you, have you always considered yourself an early adopter? Yeah, I think so. I was very active in the Katana Owners Association. And so, uh, you know, shared a lot of that information across the association. And uh, one of uh, our close sailing friends, he was um, um, an electrical engineer, he, he adopted it as well. And uh, uh, so in that period, you know, we both had a number of papers going back and forth on, uh, you know, best practices, ideas and uh, things of that nature uh, and, and would share it with the group. Uh, I mean, you know, we had some uh, articles published, but I wasn't looking up. You know, my concern was when you're on sort of the forefront of something like that, you want to really kick the tires and, and really understand it well before you start, uh, you know, hey, look what I did and you know, mm -hmm. promoting it to other people. So, yeah, it took a few years and then, then um, you know, shared a lot of that information through the Salty Dog Sailing Association that kept us pretty busy with uh, people that were interested in uh you know, and following suit and also before, the talent owners group. Yeah, but before we get to, to you sharing that information, how did you go about – I mean, nowadays there's a lot of information on the web. I've, I've benefited a lot from doing research about lithium, and there's a lot more that's off the shelf. How did you go about doing research and figuring out what it was that you needed and well, I think part of it was, you know, maybe the engineering background, you know, when I understood, um, uh, you know, some of the parameters of some of the components that are out there, it was, you know, it to me seems straightforward to design the rest of the system around it. What else do mm -hmm. I need so that I have some safety features in it and some redundancy, uh -huh. uh, you know, designed our own uh, BMS uh, system for it. Huh. Uh, but where do you learn things? It's really the same as today. So a lot of people will learn through blogs, magazine articles, and that sort of thing. For someone who's an engineer, those really aren't sources of information. It's, it's, it's a lot of uh, people's beliefs and ideas and, uh, you know, uh, precepts, but they may not be fundamental engineering yeah. Uh, yeah. principles. So the place you go then was same as now. There's so much more now. But it would be uh, a research paper uh, from MIT that was researching a bigger aspect about, uh, you know, the ideal uh, proportions of length, width, height of prismatic cells to give you, uh, you know, ideal output of, a, you know, lithium-ion battery, uh, different types of electrolytes and uh, tests that another University of Virginia did on, on uh, electrolytes and which ones would work well to allow 
the lithium ions to uh, migrate from, you know, between the two points it's trying to move, but still allowing them to be held in suspension. It's uh, just part of the chemistry there. So there'd be basic articles on the chemistry of the lithium ion battery and how it works. And so you'd read those. I mean, they're 35, 40 page long scientific articles. And so just part of what you learn to do with an engineer, I guess, and trying to extract information so you can apply it. And that's what engineering is, is applying, you know, that science. Oh, that's fascinating. And how did you, when did you, and what was the spark for deciding, okay, I'm at a point I want to start a business supplying after doing that work on sort of an ad hoc basis for individuals and having done all the research to find, you know, who really are the reliable manufacturers of, um, you know, these components and, and the equipment. And, and so with that knowledge base, uh, you know, I felt, you know, geez, really the next logical step is uh, leveraging that into, you know, helping more people than just the one or two or five that we bump into while we're sailing. So there's a business opportunity. You know, my wife and I were, you know, we had uh, we, we had both started our own businesses. My wife did it in property management. You know, we had had professional careers, and we might share some thoughts in the evening or whatever. We never worked together. And we said, geez, you know, let's put A, B, and C together. Um, number one, we're fortunate to retire early. We have younger siblings that are now facing retirement. We have elder moms that are um, – healthy hanging in there but you know probably for not much longer so rather than some of our siblings watching them now let's let them go do their thing which is you know go hiking camping mm-hmm. uh, we said okay we'll take care of our moms let's do that you know we you know we sell the big boat we'll be close to home and so uh, that's sort of our focus in life is uh, you know taking care of them but staying active mentally and and physically and kind of sharing what we've learned with other people and so, you know, we're making a little bit off of it, you know, while we do that. But that's, um, you know, that's not, the, you know, the sole goal with what we're doing. And so um, we also are in an area that's a bit rural, uh, not a lot of job opportunities for the young people. And so, you know, I thought, you know, we can help some people teach them a little bit about business and managing things and uh, inventory control and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Kind of looked at a number of different aspects that we thought could be interesting and rewarding. And so, uh, you know, those are sort of the components that led to it. We didn't want to jump into something that was new and untried. We wanted it to be something that we had experience with. And I already knew, you know, the two companies I was the most comfortable with that, you know, I'd used for you know, over a dozen years. Um, and so, um, you know, there are key players in the lithium battery business right now, and we're small, but, you know, we're one of the few battery manufacturers that can uh, get sales from them. You know, they're selling a much larger volume to, you know, Europe and the U.S. Mm. in the electric vehicle uh, ah, business. But okay. we've had the, had the accounts with them for years, and they, you know, they allow us to, you know, to stay with that. So where exactly are you located? I know you're in so we're in Virginia. It's mm-hmm. Kilmarnock, Virginia. Kilmarnock, okay. uh, Yeah, that's uh, southeast Virginia. So we're about two hours south of Washington, mm-hmm. you know, south southeast of Washington. We're about an hour from Richmond and about an hour north of uh, Norfolk, Newport News. So it's a bit rural. It's right on the Chesapeake Bay, just a little above Deltaville. Yep. It's an area called the Northern Neck, and uh, population in that county is only 11,000, so somewhat rural. <laughs> My wife and I used to go down to Urbana for the Urbana uh, uh, Oyster Festival sure. all the time. Yes, yeah, so we love it. And sure. if anybody out here on the West Coast has not yet had a chance to sail over that part <laughs> of the world, they should definitely go over, charter a boat, or just yeah, find a way to get do some sailing there because it is a special place. It is. When did you actually incorporate the Blue Heron? battery company um we incorporated it four years ago when we were still in st thomas and we operated under that name for several shipments we had that came in and then when we came back to our house here in uh, the whitestone area uh, near kilmarnock then we uh, registered it instead of being registered in st thomas it's now registered in virginia so we did that two years ago talk a little bit about what you offer i'd love to hear a little bit more about the cells in all openness, I'm a customer. You've been a, a, a sponsor on the podcast, which is wonderful. I am in the process of installing some of your modular batteries right now. I'm very excited to get the system up and running. I know you provide what are thought of as drop-in batteries with integrated BMSs. You have uh, the modulars with the external. Is that 
the complete line, or what else do you offer? Well, well, that's it. I, it, it, it. You know, what we carry are in those two categories. We have a couple of specialty batteries that are drop-in type. Uh, it, uh, one is a 300 amp hour that has a, uh, a heater and a little heating film at the mm. bottom with automatic controls. And so it's the kind of battery that if someone's going to be taking uh, their boats in northern climbs or uh, RV, you know, to ski areas, um, you know, you want to have that. And it's the chemistry with the lithium battery that uh, you can discharge all the way down to with so we'll keep it in Fahrenheit, I guess. It's probably most common for Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, um, uh, you know, you can discharge down to 20, um, 20 below zero. Mm. Uh, but you can only charge to uh, freezing to uh, 32. And so, you know, you need to be careful with uh, charging a lithium battery when the temperatures are below that. Most why good. why is that? Why do lithium batteries not like to be charged in the cold? It's it's a matter of the chemistry that the uh, density of the electrolytes becomes so thick that the lithium ions uh, do not migrate well. Got it. Because of that, you can uh, actually be causing them to preferentially develop a uh, chemical bond. It's uh, uh, form a crystalline formation uh, on the uh, anode, and so they don't release from the anode and, and migrate over to the cathode, and and that becomes a permanent uh, bond. You know, you can try you know charging, discharging. It doesn't drive them back into solution. Let's say in your camper, uh, the cell, uh, or in your boat, and you're somewhere far north. You're in you know, Vancouver and it's wintertime and, uh, you know, you're into a freezing night, you know, below 32. Um, you'd have, still have lights on, you still have power to run your, uh, you know, diesel furnace. Uh, but uh, if you didn't want to charge the batteries, the BMS would say, uh-uh, no current flowing in, uh, the battery temperature is too low. Uh, so with this type of battery, it would sense that you were trying to charge and it would then use the charging current uh, to heat the the film that's at the bottom of the uh, the cells, it's just laying at the bottom of the case, and and so it then warms up the um, cells, and uh, once it senses that the cells are up to that uh, forty degree temperature, it uh, then shuts off uh, any charging flow going to the film, and the charging flow then goes into the battery. That's great. Yeah. And so that's the specialty battery we have for those kind of conditions. We have another one that's called a dual purpose. Uh, it's got a very uh, powerful BMS, so it allows a high discharge. And for someone that has a boat, let's say it's uh, you know a, a small 30-foot boat that has only a single battery, that is the house battery and also starts the engine, this battery can serve that purpose. So those are specialty applications. Now, the uh, drop-in batteries are... As you point out, yeah, so-called drop-in, and the drop-in doesn't mean that's all you need to do functionally. It means that they fit the space of a standard size battery, like a, a Group 31 or a 4D or an 8D uh, battery. And so you'll have one that's physically made to be similar, so it works well as a replacement. You know, pull out your 8Ds and put in these others that are the same physical size. Separately, you need to deal with other issues, uh, you know, charging and whatever else, charging devices and alternators. And we can talk about that separately, but that's that's sort of the concept of a drop-in. Well, the drop-in batteries and our standard batteries, like a 4D and 8D, are pretty low profile. And that's what led us to the concept of the modular uh, battery, that we can get cells that are of a, um, a shape that once you bet, you know bond them together, clamp them together with the you know the the links or the bus bars you know between terminals, they end up having let's say the same footprint of maybe one of the drop-in batteries, but they'll have twice the capacity, and that's because they're a little taller. And a lot of the lockers that we have in our boats are taller than the eight-inch height of a drop-in battery, uh, and so you're sort of wasting space. The existing batteries, they're 8Ds, but that's the standard size, and they're made that way for other applications, diesel trucks and whatever else. So when we put them in our boats, you end up with some you know, volume that is not really being used, and volume and space on a boat is uh, important. So yeah. You know, you'd be able to put, you know, these modulars in the place of the drop-in and maybe, you know, you had four drop-ins. Well, you may only need to put the same equivalent capacity in modulars 
in half the space and you gain some volume. Yeah. So I just... that was why we went with the modular design to have that available to give, you know, boat owners, designers, uh, flexibility and, you know, in the physical space that you need for a battery pack. Yeah. I know I'm, my setup is a, is a great example of that. Well, I did do a little reconfiguring uh, of the space where I have the batteries, but you pointed out to me, and this was uh, uh, very helpful, is since I no longer had lead-acid batteries, I didn't have to worry about ventilation, the off-gassing of any hydrogen, so I didn't really need a battery box to contain any sulfuric acid that might spill out. So I could reconfigure the space and was able to fit a lot more in that space, which was great. That doesn't mean there's not other complications with adding lithium, but um, but yeah, it's 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 different. And so the sizes of batteries are important too. We we get you know, we hear from a number of cruisers that say, well, geez, if I had if you had a 500 amp hour battery, we could slip that in there, and I wouldn't have to buy as many batteries to get the capacity I want. Maybe just buy one battery, one yeah. big battery. <laughs> Which brings uh, me to the question of power density. Do you see that? continuing to get better i mean there there are some uh, sort of physical um limitations uh you know, you know the point i was making about the 500 amp battery the reason we don't do that or a 400 amp is the plates that are inside are very thin plates separated by a thin plastic mesh separator and so when you think of something that's you know a long thin panel like that if the battery were being jarred one direction or the other, the bigger the plate, the easier it is for it to, to shift back and forth and maybe mm. break loose or whatever. And you don't want, you know, the cathode or anode to, to break loose and possibly be, you know, hit, interrupting or hitting each other and causing a short internal to the battery. So for batteries that are going to be used in other than a stationary application, the consensus of the industry, and I think it makes a lot of sense, is not to go any higher than a 300 amp hour. It's just the, the profile that you have. You still have to be careful on how it's oriented. You know, you can lay it on one side, but not the other side. Um, you know, you lay it on one side, the plates still are vertical. If you lay it on another side, then the plates are horizontal. That's what mm. you don't want. A boat goes up and down in pounds, and you could be flexing those plates in there that way. So, yeah. anyway, so that's one aspect Uh uh, physically that you need to be careful of in terms of uh, power density surface area matters the plates are about as thin as you can get them when uh, folks want higher power density you end up going with some lithium chemistries like lithium cobalt or lithium manganese that can give you much higher power density lithium cobalt what it is in our cell phones and uh, computers, but also the Fitbit watches and the uh, uh, the hoverboard uh, skateboards, and so a number of them all got into problems because of that lithium uh, cobalt. Um, it has a very weak oxygen bond. It's a chemistry issue, and so once it, you know you're trying to avoid combustion, right, or uh, uh, auto combustion, and so you try to avoid any ignition source. So you don't want you know, plates to be bumping up against each other. They need to be held rigid and have a separator that's, you know, very strong so that they can't get to each other uh, physically, make mm -hmm. contact. And then you also don't want the electrolyte to get too hot. In terms of a battery concern, it, it's, it's something like 250 degrees Fahrenheit. So people say, oh, it's going to be a 90 degree day. It's going to be hot. That's not good for my lithium batteries. Well, it's fine for the lithium batteries. <laughs> you know, hot for a battery is a little different than hot for us. Uh -huh. You want to avoid that heat. And then the other is you want to avoid oxygen. If you have the heat, you have the oxygen, you have an ignition source, and you get fire or rapid combustion, which is an explosion. And thermal runaway would be from getting a battery too hot to where its temperature gets up into that 200 you know, plus uh, degree range. And that can happen from overcharging. You have a malfunction in your charger and you keep charging a battery that's already full, the temperature starts going up. <laughs> you keep pumping more energy into it and temperature will keep going up. That That's why we add safety features like a BMS. That's why 
you be very careful in the chargers that you buy. You, you know, you can buy some very inexpensive knockoff stuff these days or, you know, whatever inexpensive products uh, that are not well controlled. They don't meet UL, for example, or test things extensively. And, mm-hmm. and they make sure there's redundancy built into the safety sensors and things like that in your uh, battery charger. So, you know, you buy the name brands, uh, you know, the Victron, the Masterbolts, uh, because it has all, you know, those safety features in it. Because a runaway charger is a problem not only in lithium batteries, but lead acid. Seen a boat burn up that uh, was in a, two slips over from us. So the battery charger caused the the lead acid batteries to explode. And the metal was so hot, it ignited uh, the plates. The lead plates were so hot, ignited other materials around. Wow. So you don't want heat. And that runaway charger is the key source of doing that charging at too high a rate from what a manufacturer recommends. So we test extensively. We have independent labs test uh, the product, including UL. And so they'll come back with uh, some uh, maximum uh, charging rate that that battery can withstand before they start to see problems with it uh, excessively getting hot in a runaway. And so our specs are then even much lower than what the test labs come back and say, just to be safe at a safety margin in there. Some people who ignore it and say, I just want to, you know, charge as fast as I can without paying attention to that spec, that also can lead to overheating. So the other component then is, um, so we talked about ignition, you need to physically shift the location of the internal plates that can happen on some of these batteries that are designed in pouches, for example, or when the you know the very well designed uh, batteries are getting near end of life, and if you start to notice a little bulging in the plates or whatever, the sides of the battery, chances are the battery is only putting out at that point probably thirty percent of its original rating, and so it's just time to get rid of it. And so with lead acid, where we'd run batteries till they were dead dead or maybe down to their last 10% or whatever. We can't get anything out of them, squeeze any more juice out. We then go ahead and replace the lead acid. Well, you don't want to do that with lithium. When it's down to its, we recommend its last 40%. Our rated cycles are based on how many cycles you get down to be down to a 40% capacity. Mm. Uh, It's then time to get rid of it. So you're not getting into the physical deformation uh, stage. Okay. And so um, then the ignition is ours are lithium iron phosphate. And most of the manufacturers who make batteries to go into you know, boats and RVs, you know, vehicles into cars are lithium iron phosphate. Um, but, you know, there are some batteries out there people, you know, that are advertised as, uh, well, we have twice the capacity of other uh, lithium batteries. You know, be careful. Check the chemistry. Uh, yeah. You know, chances are that's... Um, you know, a lithium cobalt battery. Lithium <clears throat> is not lithium, lithium is not lithium. It's not all the same. Not all lithium is the same. There's actually 20 some, uh, I think now 24 different chemistries that are actually in in production. Yeah. Most of them are very similar. I mean, you'll have lithium cobalt and you have like six variants of a lithium cobalt. So anyway, it's, it, it, you know, if someone wants more information on it, they have a pretty good product they have a concern with, they can always call us and, you know. Just, yeah, you know, how do people reach out to you, Hank, if they want? Best way is is support at, one word, Blue Heron Battery, B-L-U-E-H-E-R-O-N and Battery, Blue Heron Battery, one word, dot com. Hmm. It, you know, we'll help people with any questions that they have, you know, whether they're clients or not. Um, we just don't want people to get into a problem situation. And so, um, you know, glad to do that. So th- those are sort of the you know things to be careful of. The lithium cobalt and the lithium manganese uh, serve a purpose. We have, I mean, we, we couldn't use the phones we're talking on right now if, if we still had to do, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, you know some of the old chemistries or even uh, they would they would be about uh three to four times the volume of what we're holding right now if it was lithium iron phosphate so lithium iron phosphate is a lower power density there are improvements uh you know over time and and have to get just a little bit more power out of them but um you know i'm not sure i see any groundbreaking uh you know on that it's going to be some changes in chemistry and are some chemistries that are being evaluated that uh you know have some promise but uh yeah probably not anything we're going to see in production commercial use for 10 years or so Hmm. Hmm. you mentioned a few times that um 
you have a lot of RV customers as well. And I know that, well, both sailing and RV use during the pandemic just skyrocketed. Was that beneficial for business? Have you seen? Th- yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have, um, yeah, quite a few RVers that, uh, you know, a lot of them, they're do-it-yourself. And so, you know, putting their own battery bank in and so they have a number of questions. There's a lot of carryover between the two. Yeah. Um, the marine industry in terms of 12-volt, you know, progressed uh, earlier than the RV business. So a lot of the manufacturers of the uh, 12-volt gear, you know, they're the same ones into the, you know, into the RV market. And, uh, some of the terminology carries over when you're you're plugging in at a campground. It's called shore power. Yeah, I just uh, found just that out. That was uh, I heard somebody yeah, talking about that, and that kind of, I was like, oh, yeah. Sure. And there are a lot of examples like that, where you know some of the switches that first came out for the marine business for uh, isolating your battery bank, and you know, and all of those are now used throughout the uh, RV business. So, <laughs> kind of interesting. The RV business is much larger, so there's some things that are you know, happening in the other direction where they're now, um, you, you're not worried so much with, uh, corrosion from, you know, salt environment, um, not to yeah. the same degree as on a boat. And so, uh, you know, a number of manufacturers that are making some chargers and inverters that are about half the price of, uh, ones for the Marine industry. And people say, ah, oh, well, yeah, you just put the Marine industry name on it and it doubles the price, but it's really, it's a change in materials throughout, you know, they don't, they don't conformal coat. Uh, they don't use gold tip fittings on the connections. Okay. Uh, so, you know, like you do on NEMA 2000. So, yeah. you know, a lot of differences that do drive up, uh, you know, the cost. Wow, this has been so informative, Hank. Um, what haven't we talked about that you think people should know, either about your business, about lithium in general? Well, so one area that we've not talked about, so one of the consequences of trying to go to a, a lithium battery bank is to is – you have to be careful with your charging equipment, battery chargers, uh, uh, alternators, regulators that control the um, alternators. Um, lithium batteries um, uh, ideally are charged to a, um, a lower voltage than what you need for AGMs or lead acid. Lead acid batteries have so much resistance, electrical resistance, you have to ramp the battery uh, voltage, or the charging voltage you know, up much higher, 14.6, 14.8 to try to get enough charge to flow into the batteries. And then, then the batteries get warm, lead acid very easily because they had high resistance. So they then ramp back quickly. So the charging profile for lithium, it, you want to take advantage of the, uh, the high charge rates that lithium permits and it's low resistance. So it allows a lot of current to flow in. Existing chargers actually do work very well. And so that's one of the key points I want to make here because a lot of people then take from that background info that i gave you and say oh well then we have to throw away all our chargers we need all new chargers and some of the charging companies will not you know correct you on that <laughs> but uh, you know you don't often you don't need to um and even if they don't have a lithium setting which is another you know incorrect assumption that if my charger doesn't have a lithium setting well i'm gonna have to replace it, it it's actually better not to have the lithium setting because the lithium settings that are in most of the equipment are based on some of the early thinking from 10 years ago on what charging rates lithium batteries needed or or could handle. They they were targeted at uh, trying to take advantage of the fast charging rates of lithium as a selling point for lithium. Well, they are fast charging. And they will charge much faster, which you don't need to push them all the way up to 14.6 or something like that to get them to charge fast. And because more recent research now shows that that actually takes some life away from the battery. So it's if you can get in and adjust the, the settings through custom settings, it's often called um, in, in these uh, battery chargers and also in your regulators, and you set them for uh, – very specifically for what that manufacturer of your lithium battery recommends, you know, then you'll get, uh, you know, plenty fast charge rates uh, and you won't uh, damage the battery. You won't be taking away life, you know, simply by the charging. There can be other things you can do. They could take away life of the battery, but uh, you know, at least the, you know, the charging part you've got uh, set right. Um, and so alternators um, generally are putting out, if it's an outboard alternator or 
um, an older uh, alternator on some older engines, they often are only putting out just a single voltage, uh, like 14.6, and they do that all the time. Well, that continual 14.6 to begin with is too high. Lithium is much better at 14.1 or 14.2. But then doing it continually also causes some degradation. It it causes that... um, uh, the crystallization that I had referred to, you know, before mm. that happens down at, you know, near freezing. If you're continually charging a full battery, it causes that crystallization on the, you know, instead of the anode, it's on the cathode. And then you can't drive that lithium. So you're, you're taking lithium out of solution, out of the equation, and basically reducing the capacity of the battery. So um, you got to be very careful with alternators. Um, they also, if they continually charge, besides that crystallization issue, you then all raise, you know, you, you get into issues of raising temperature and getting batteries too hot. So um, it, you need to be careful with those. It's better to go with uh, either just to have the alternator go right to the start battery and charge a start battery, then you use a DC to DC charger, and that you can set the settings, program the settings on that. Uh, output going to the house bank to be proper for lithium. The, the alternative would be to use the alternator, which you'd, you know, sort of my preference uh, because it's got such, yeah, you know, a large amount of current that it can flow. You know, have it go to the uh, go to the house battery, but uh, put an external regulator on it. Either you know, get something like a Belmar alternator that's set up for an external regulation. Or another little trick that a lot of people don't know about, if you can take the, you take the alternator to an alternator repair shop and just tell them to modify it to accept external regulation. And they can do that. Hmm. They remove the internal regulator. They, they extend the wires that will then connect to the external regulator. And then you, the external regulator can be programmed for the um, lithium settings. And, you know, you do a modification of an existing one and it... Uh, it saves you a lot of money. Yeah. Hank, thank you so much. I What I really appreciate is how clearly you're able to explain all of this. There's so much information and misinformation out there around this topic. So I really appreciate your expertise, uh, your depth of knowledge, the time that you've spent uh, working with this, and, and the way you can explain it all. So. Thanks for talking to us about it. Well, you're most welcome, Ben. Glad to do it. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you want to get in touch with Hank or learn more about Blue Heron Batteries, visit blueheronbattery.com. Blueheronbattery.com. I am your host, Ben Shaw. Thanks for listening. As always, you can reach out to me on Instagram at outthegatesailing or simply email me at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. I always love hearing from listeners, and if you want to give the podcast a little thumbs up and a bit of a bump in the podcast ratings, go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a positive review. That'll that'll help immensely. Until next time, smooth sailing.